Run if you must. Hide if you can. Scream if you are able. But above all, if you are alone, don't let them catch you. <laughs> the Slashers. My name is Paul. You might know me from the Countdown Podcast. My name is Megan. You might know me from Spoiler Peace Theater. My name is Jason. You might know me from Binge Movies and the Countdown Podcast. On occasion. <laughs> Welcome to the first official episode of The Slashers. And today we are covering the golden age, the beginning of the golden age of The Slashers with 1980 and seven films that we have all watched that represent, well, maybe the best and worst of what 1980 had to offer. Now, we bring three very different opinions or perspectives to this slasher discussion, and we are going, we call it the blood pool, the seven films that we've picked. I'm going to run through them now for you. We are going to bring different perspectives, and since this is our first recording with this triumvirate, we don't know what those perspectives are going to be. <laughs> so we're going to be finding out in real time how deeply perverted each person on this podcast is when it comes to blood, guts, gore, strangulation, mutilation, and all the things that make up our beloved blood pool. I say beloved uh, because we've covered some uh, very strange films uh, in chronological order for a genre that uh, I would argue is probably still finding its footing in 1980. Uh, we start with the February 29th release. At least these are U.S. domestic. Sorry, Paul and listeners around the world. Don't answer the phone. Uh, of course, we have May 9th. Uh, uh, no, uh, no, sorry, Jason. Uh, uh, it's uh, don't answer the phone. <laughs> don't answer the phone. <laughs> don't answer that phone. <laughs> yeah. We have something, Paul, you and I are all too familiar with. We did it over on Binge Movies. Friday oh, the 13th, yes. the original, which came out May 9th, 1980. We have the Scream Queen herself reprising. I think it might be. This is, I don't know if, I, don't, I can't remember if Terror Trainer, this came out first. Don't kill me, horror family, horror community, but it's prom night, July 18th, 1980. We have, it all takes all kind of critters to make Farmer Vincent's fritters. August 14th, 1980s, <laughs> Motel Hell. Then we go into the fall, September 1st, 1980. We get a very sleazy little film with the guy from Dark Man that you probably know, <laughs> Schizoid. And then we have uh, a very interesting film came out on October 14th, 1980, that is obsessed with the golden age of Hollywood, even more so than co-host Megan Kearns. It's Fade to Black. And then we've got, right just in time for Christmas, the Joe Spinell ultimate Sleazoid classic, uh, remade by Elijah Wood <laughs> not that long ago. Uh, yeah. Of course, I'm talking about Maniac. So that makes up our blood pool today, Paul. Now, we are awarding today, and indeed through every episode of The Slashes, five awards through the films that we have watched. Best flick out of five sharp objects, of course. Oh, yeah. Best poster slash box art, which itself will be interesting because, of course, we've probably all seen different versions thereof. Exactly. Best kill from the whole of the seven films, which was the best kill, the one that absolutely earned this particular, that particular film its perhaps most notorious moment. What is the most likely cult classic from the films? And, of course, in keeping with slasher lore, the best final 
girl, unless it's not a girl, because we're using girl in quotation marks in this particular instance. So, Megan, then, you watched all seven films quite recently. Do you want to lead us away with which of these films did you enjoy, like, appreciate the most? <laughs> I guess I, I Megan is the most unknown because, Paul, uh, you and I have talked about slashers off and on for years. So I know that you're like the gore hound between the two that of us. Probably what's going to be my, my mo- given my notes I've written here, yes, definitely skewing mm-hmm. in that direction. We're just two guys of the podcast, but Megan is an actual film critic. So I don't know slumming your t- I don't know. I, yeah, you're slumming <laughs> with us. I don't know what you think about slasher movies at all, Megan. So I, I, I kind of want to back up and go, Megan, what do you all think right. about slasher movies before we sure. get to 1980? <laughs> you assume you like them. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here, right? I do. I wouldn't so- assume anything. <laughs> <laughs> that is also fair. Right. It is not good to make assumptions. Uh, no, choice. I, I, so I love horror films and I love mm. slashers. I grew up watching slashers so throughout my childhood and teen years. So it's a genre that I watched a lot of when I was young and then kind of got away from when I started reviewing films and being a critic. And I've kind of turned back to cover a lot of horror films again. And yeah, so it's a delight to revisit these films and to see some of them for the first time, which is great. Mm. I find even when I don't enjoy a slasher film, I find slashers absolutely fascinating because horror and sci-fi to me are the most political of genres, and like the most overtly political. And so because horror deals with such primal issues of the body and fear and taboos and social mores, mm. So even when I'm not enjoying the film itself or if it has shitty production value or it's really low budget and in a way that's not utilizing its creativity, I still tend to find them fascinating. And from a film theory perspective, specifically a feminist film theory perspective, I find them utterly riveting and there's so much to analyze and unpack. So I love talking about slashers and analyzing slashers. So before we started recording, peek behind the curtain, I referred to you, Megan, as the film scholar. And you're like, I'm no film scholar. (laughs) Everybody just heard what you just said. So you're definitely a film scholar. Well, thank you. Thank you. We're covering (laughs) all the bases here. Yeah. What about you? I say you're the gore hound, uh, gore whore, blood pervert. You don't like that term. Uh, (laughs) um, Blood pervert. What are you, you, man? You're known if people, listeners of The Countdown know you as like the horror guy. What's, what's your uh, perspective in general about slashers? Nowhere near as well refined or <laughs> <laughs> put together as, as Megan's. Um, other than appreciating gore and liking horror films for that, what I really like and what I really assess when I'm watching films, I'm more a story guy. I'm more the plot guy. Does it hold together? Is what people are doing in this film, in the world of that film, believable? And can you buy into it? And when it, when Things happen in films, and there is at least one of these ones which fall into this category here, where it's completely unrealistic. That's where I lose my mind, uh, lose my shit. I'm assuming we can swear on this podcast, by the way. There's, there's something we didn't discuss before we got going, because it's R-rated films, it's R-rated content, it's R-rated potty mouth, at least from me over here in Australia. No, Jason's TV, shaking this, his this head. is podcast PG, Paul. This is a family-friendly uh, slasher movie podcast. Sure it is. <laughs> when we're talking about decapitations and where they've been putting their heads, 
that sounds very family friendly to me. Yeah, so I'm I'm more that story guy. I'm, I am yep. the effects guy. I am the gore guy. I'm here to watch a slasher film to watch people get killed and off and enjoy the reveal of who it is at the end, as well as enjoy the final girl's struggle to survive, as well as try and pick who's going to be there towards the end with her. What about you, Jason? What do you bring to the table other than your slick back hair, orange sunglasses, <laughs> which the audience can't see, and red I mean, neon red. lighting? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I am fascinated by all forms of filmmaking. Regardless of genre, I think all f- all forms of filmmaking are at least worthy of consideration. And I think if you're going to be a film nerd, film critic, film reviewer, film scholar, yeah, yeah whatever you want to call yourself, if you're going to have a YouTube channel, podcast, whatever, you got to watch a wide berth. You have to have depth and width of, you know, sort of the widest palette possible and develop an appreciation if not for the movies themselves because of plotting effects, themes, morality, whatever, uh, the fact that like this is still an art form and people are having to put money together, put at uh, uh, like in some cases, especially in 1980 with slashers, shoelace crews together, go out, do guerrilla filmmaking uh, and try to tell a story. And it may just be to put asses in seats from an exploitation perspective, or they may have other things on their mind. They may they may be utilizing the exploitation genre or slasher genre, psychosexual horror genre. Um, in case in the case of 1980, I think most of these movies actually are more like mysteries, grimy mysteries. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they have more in common with like mystery thrillers than than what we think of typically with slashers. Even though some of them are really sleazy, uh, it's just interesting for me to see that I, I have appreciation for that at such a um, grassroots level and i think the three of us probably know this like if a slasher is made today if it's not directly trying to ape this particular aesthetic from like the early 80s it's going to be made on digital it's going to be made with sd cards and digital cameras it's going to have a different sheen to it there's something about like low quality 16 millimeter blown up to 35 millimeter low quality film stock shot in the greasy grimy streets of LA or New York or Vancouver, Canada somewhere. Uh, that it's just, I don't know. It, 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 there's something about it. That I just love. So I think, uh, I think maybe I'm the aesthetic guy. I don't know. I, I, uh, yeah, I'm just, I, I, I love the idea that people used to be able to just grab a camera and go make movies and they could have such, um, interesting visceral feel that I find a lot of the digital era of movies don't feel like anything, you know, they might be better stories. They may be better acted, but they don't have any particular, don't got a vibe. So I don't know. Aesthetics vibe, whatever. I'm just here. I'm here for the, for the ride. And what a ride it promises to be. All right. So that's the players here for you listeners in terms of the blood pool for 1980 and indeed, we're going all the way through to 1984, which is what we've defined as the golden era of the slasher. A couple of those years are going to be divided into two episodes because there's too many films. Seven is sort of what we capped it as the max, what we could cover for one episode. And that's what we're doing today for 1980 as per the films you've already heard. I'm interested. What did you guys think of 1980? Like these movies, the slasher year 1980 in general, Megan, what'd you think? You're smiling. <laughs> Overall, aside from Friday the 13th, which revealing my cards early was my favorite of 
the films of, of these just because of its production value. It has great cinematography um, because of its influence and impact on the genre and just filmmaking in general. But the other films have their moments too. But overall, it just made me yearn for earlier slashers like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Black Christmas, and later slashers that we will be covering in the 80s. So <laughs> this to me is a very interesting year because aside from Friday the 13th, which of course is taking the parameters and tropes of the genre and doing some different things, some things that it's adhering, aside from that, I find, and Fade to Black, which is also kind of doing some its own interest, very interesting thing. Its and own thing. Very interesting <laughs> thing. I'm not yeah. even sure I would constitute it as a slasher because of that, but I'm glad it's in this group because it is so fascinating. But aside from those two films, the others really feel like reworkings or straight ripoffs of Psycho, of yep. other films that have come before. So this is a very interesting year and a transitional year i would say for slashers i what's interesting to me is i think like i was saying uh i think these movies i think 1980 at least the, from the blood pool we have this week these seven films um i think they're they're all they, they really to me to your point they all obviously all feel like psycho to some extent but they feel like okay what could we do with the traditional mystery story you know uh, with l way less censorship. If there's no censorship, if we take the um, sensibilities of 1970s filmmaking, the mean, kind of gritty, grimy um, 70s filmmaking that was even getting popular within the mainstream, like Martin Scorsese, people like that. What if we like took that and just like amped it up, right? Like what if you took Taxi Driver and you combined it with Psycho and that's the movie? That's what most of 1980 feels like me to me. I think what's really interesting, Paul, is we did Friday the 13th, the whole series together on a different show. And if you're comparing Friday the 13th with just about any other movie made in the 80s, it looks low rent and uh, poorly made. And it's just a bunch of ripoffs from a bunch of other stuff. Then you stick but. it in the context of what <laughs> slashers had to offer. All of a sudden you're like, oh, maybe this is why this one has this enduring legacy. Right. Uh, did you feel the same way, Paul? I don't know. I, I It was interesting. It recontextualized the first Friday the 13th for me. To sort of package up what the both of you have said and in my own way, I think three of these films operate as this sort of murder mystery kind of thriller. Mm -hmm. And then the others are either telling you right at the top who the killer is and then you are going on the journey with them. So there is no mystery whatsoever uh, in sort of well really there's a little bit i guess in motel hell it takes a little while for things to be revealed there but it's not a shock not if you've seen the box art cover or anything <laughs> those lines right. when it all comes to pass so yeah th there is that sort of vibe to it and you're absolutely right there's this these films are more exploitation than they are probably slasher as a as a general rule um but yeah they are shoddy looking they are poorly made friday 13th is the best i think fade to black is is the other exception to that rule but the others here are you look at these films and it's like oh my god how did how did this get wide release how did, some of these are one of these at least i'd never even heard of before and there's bloody good reason for that because it fucking sucks <laughs> <laughs> well, well, well 
So we, I think we should say like straight off the top, well, the blood pool is going to consist of a wide range of movies. Some of them were grindhouse drive in midnight movie releases that didn't get wide distribution, at least globally. Some of them were like VHS video store staples where they made millions of dollars because teenagers were just going to try to rent the most exploitative thing they possibly could. And some of them are like all time classics. They all generally fit or have historically been labeled as slashers. Um, but we don't say that this is a definitive nor an exhaustive. This no. is an ad hoc list from the year that we're trying to get a representative sampling of what the year 1980 or 1981 or so forth and so on uh, kind of was made up of, at least in regards to this beloved and maligned subgenre. So yeah, that's a really so good point. Before we Please get the, you're going to get feedback, Paul. People are going to be like, no, you well, said you put this Megan Black is a slasher, Megan. You said this was a slasher. <laughs> this is a slasher. Like, we agree with you. It's on the list, right? We may di- we may say, eh, maybe it got categorized like that, but we don't think it really is or whatever. Right. But you know, that's 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 why we're doing this. That's why we're doing this kind of retrospective look. Is we're reappraising this this decade. So it's, uh, I'm 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 so excited. I'm glad to be doing this with you guys. Likewise, but it, it's a really good point to emphasize as well. You might. Well, your favorite film of 1980 might not be here and it might be a slasher film. So we, have, we aren't claiming that this is all of the slashes of the 80s. As Jason says, it's a sample and a wide cross-section thereof. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Hey, drop us, let, drop us a nine. Let us know. If we've missed something quintessential, you want to hear about it, then absolutely. We'd love to get that feedback. I think the best way to get that feedback is by leaving us a five-star review and then tell us mm-hmm. in your five-star review what movies we missed and what we should have covered. Okay. So can I ask you, were you guys as surprised as I was how many of these movies boiled down to being cop procedural yes. melodramas? Oh, God. And then <laughs> just and following then the like day-to-day minutiae of police officers. <laughs> <laughs> and then in at least one case where it's too boring for that, so then they just veer off into slapstick custard pie <laughs> comedy, which is yes. great from uh, Don't Answer the Phone. <laughs> wow. Um, I, okay, so the other thing I noticed was this juxtaposition between, and Megan, maybe you can speak to this for us, this juxtaposition between, and obviously this is like go, this is going on in the era, this is uh, post uh, the women's liberation, et cetera, et cetera, but the juxtaposition between, there's a lot of like professional women, educated women, mm-hmm. like there's a female psychologist, and then, and then the juxtaposition between those women and then like sex workers. Because yeah. there's a lot of sex workers, and a lot of sex workers get brutalized on the way to the white collar women <laughs> by the killer, and I'm like, what do you think that means? And there's also like a lot of, um, at the time, what would have been considered like subversive sexuality, underground fetishes, BDSM sort of imagery. Like, I- I'm not just pinning it on you, but <laughs> since you since you said on the podcast. You're looking at kind of from that angle. What do you make of all that? Why are we killing so many white collared women in the 19 in 1980? Well, first of all, I think we're killing women in general because misogyny. I mean, there is a lot of rampant misogyny happening. And oftentimes art is a response and a reaction to the politics of the time. And yes, the women's movement had gained massive momentum. But as a reaction to that, oftentimes things are reactionary in politics and art. And so I would argue that's part of it. I think another part of it is we can't divorce the connections to Psycho because Psycho really set the template 
for, as Carol J. Clover calls it in Men, Women, and Chainsaws, the psychosexual fury and how Norman Bates is aroused, attracted to women, but then the mother part has to kill women. And that we see that template throughout these films in yeah. Bloodpool is that so and in Maniac especially, is that when mm-hmm. men are aroused, then they need to kill these women. And so I think that's part of it too. I think another part of it is something tied to kind of to Molly Haskell's work in her seminal book From Reverence to Rape, where there is a distinction between kind of a Madonna whore distinction between women of the virginal, white-collar, educated, working women, and then lower-class sex workers. And sex workers are seen as disposable. And so a lot of the killers Mm -hmm. are kind of practicing their murder and their violence out on disposable sex workers and then working their way up to kind of the trophy of the wealthier, more educated elite women. Um, but and typically you, the educated elite women get to survive typically in these movies. Typically. Yeah. And in, in yeah. amongst this blood pool that we're, that we're looking yeah. at, that's not always the case, of course, but yes, yes, it definitely is the case. And probably even in the subsequent films that we'll discuss in the years to come. But yeah, but I think a lot of that is all kind of swirling together is like these, these issues with gender and these issues of politics. And yeah, so I think a lot of that is why we're seeing so much. And I think also some of these filmmakers, because of the ties with exploitation films, they're really pushing the boundaries of what's acceptable. And like you said, of censorship. And so I think that's another facet too, is what can we get away with showing on screen? So I think all of these things are coalescing into why we're seeing so much violence against women on screen at this time. Paul, you're a clinician. You have a psychology background. (laughs) Uh, What do you make of the psychology of these movies in 1980? Exceptionally disturbing. Some of the people (laughs) that make these films, I wouldn't want to be sitting alone uh, in a room with or walking down a dark alley with, that's for sure. I think (laughs) Maniac is one of the most deplorably disturbed pieces of, of cinema that has probably been made. Maniac. I'm stunned that it got out into the world in the form that it did. And whilst it certainly ticks the boxes on the gore side of things, everything else about that film is icky and disturbing and, you know, you want to go have a shower as soon as you've finished watching it. And I guess, therefore, that's a success at that particular level. You can lock your doors, but you can't lock the madman out of your mind. That's the worst of these, although there's a Don't Answer the Phone is just a terrible film that. Well, by worse, do you you mean worse quality or worse morally? Worse quality. Yes, I think it's even worse morally because all it's saying is this Vietnam vet came back scarred. He's got got PTSD and he's just running around killing women because that's about as far as they get with his MO in that entire film. At least Maniac attempts Mm -hmm. to explain why this main character is so disturbed in a very i don't know how would, how would i say uh superficial way. way but there is an 
Yeah, there is a there is an explanation for it. So whilst you never obviously are on side with him and you are waiting for his end to come, at least there's a, a certain level of empathy you might be able to find. Whereas everything that happens is don't answer the phone from the way it is blocked, shot, acted, conceived, put together, and then edited, as well as the storyline and what it's saying is just why did I waste my time? You, you don't even know what kind of film you're trying to make here, so, and yet I'm sitting here watching it. If you are alone, don't answer the phone. He is out there, somewhere in the crowd, behind you, beside you, ready to kill again. We've reached the first disagreement in the show. Mark this down, everybody. Oh, uh, okay. Didn't take long. <laughs> I so I agree with ninety percent of what you said about just don't answer the phone or don't answer the phone, uh, except for the fact of the story. I think the story is absolutely fascinating. I think the I, the con- concept of a on air female psychologist it actually doesn't have to be female, but an on air psychologist doing radio therapy which is something that doesn't really exist anymore now we just have influencers now nah, phrase it killed but yeah yeah but doing on-air therapy which is like unethical to begin with yes <laughs> uh, um getting an actual a person with like actual psychotic uh uh proclivities to become obsessed with them and then stalk them and sort of murder along the way to them I think this the 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 root of that story you can make a very very interesting tense thriller. I think you could explore a lot of stuff. I think I think um I think the idea, I think the idea of having such an intelligent woman, such a professional woman is very compelling. I think she's in some ways have kind of a more actualized character uh than any a lot of the other women who appear in these the, these movies of 19 that we're covering. Uh, it d- but then the movie just doesn't follow through with that, and everything else you said is 100% correct and 100% true. And I think it, it has it almost the most interesting the, the love interest. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That, like, uh, yeah. I, so, I, one of the again, least convincing I, I, romances in cinema history. <laughs> Absolutely. I agree with 90% of what you're saying. I agree with 90% of what you're saying, but I think this had the the maybe the best basis for an actual film that could have been really thrilling and scary and interesting. Because I, I, I think about, like, we're going to, jumping ahead later in the decade, but I think about like Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. And you know, you have the radio DJ and all of a sudden the family is showing up in the radio station. Like, like there's just something, even like one of the psycho sequels does the exact same thing with maybe CCH pounder or someone, but where, you know, it's, it's Norman calling into a radio station. I just think the idea of being sort of trapped in a confined space and that distance and not really having the face of the killer and not really knowing, is this just like a, breathy pervert in the line or is this person really doing these things and then I, I i don't know i think it's very to me that was the one that was sort of the most unsettling as far as like because these are all stalker movies basically mm-hmm. and that was the one that was kind of the most unsettling from a stalker perspective because it seemed the most real like that could have happened in 1980 um you know uh yeah I don't know. I uh, yeah, but I agree. At the end of the day, it's it's probably the least put together movie, and they really don't know what they're doing with it, and it's tonally all over the place. And so, yes. overall, I agree. I just think the kernel is probably okay. stronger than Fair you yep. you said. Megan, I, I think the idea of exploring PTSD, especially at that time, right after Vietnam War, and there were so many veterans dealing with PTSD, and and 
still today, I think is fascinating if you actually had that in an interesting, good movie. But yes, I think exploring PTSD is really fascinating. Um, I think tangling it up with a rapist killer is highly problematic and highly ableist. Um, And I think the other problem, too, is that with this film specifically, there is so much conflation between being sexy with the women and showing their bare breasts along with the (laughs) murder and the violence against them. And that, that juxtaposition of sexuality and sexiness and rape and murder is really revolting. And the other thing about the, the radio show, I agree with you. I think, um, I agree with you, Jason, that I think that the radio show idea is a really good one. And it's not a slasher, but I think the zombie horror film Pontypool does that quite well, Mm. being trapped in a radio station and exploring Mm. that and the confines of that quite well. So I I agree with you that there is a seed of an idea here with Don't Answer the Phone, but I think the movie is so, it's such a mess in its production value. And I think it's so misguided in its ideas that for me, it was an abomination and it was just an absolutely abysmal <laughs> experience. <laughs> Holy shit. Right word. Right word. Thank you. I like it. I, I, see, it's I, awesome to be on a podcast with someone who goes more extreme with their views of how you <laughs> than me. Thank you, Paul. Part of my perspective on all of these movies though is I don't always I don't think that this isn't true across the board, but I don't think that for the most part the filmmakers are in that I don't think they have sometimes a worldview that they're trying to get across. I think they're trying to come up with shock horror, to use your phrase, Paul, shock horror to drive butts into seats. They want the reputation of the movie to get out there because the movie business at this time is still driven by number of tickets sold, period. And so it's all a freak show. And that doesn't, I I don't think that they're sitting down going, oh, well, this is the moral message we're trying to get across that this person, these people deserve to die and these people deserve to live. I think maybe we can retrospectively look back at it and say, okay, what does this say subconsciously about culture? I think it's way more dumb than that. I think it's way more craven than that. I think it's <laughs> way more simplistic than that. You know, single women are afraid of walking to their car at night. So what if we preyed upon that fear? Tonight I asked moviegoers who had just seen the film if they thought it was potentially injurious to women. Yeah, I'm gonna be scared to walk out at night really now. Do you think it was unfair to women? Yeah, I did. How about you? What did you think of it? I think it was a sick movie. It was where they, it was kind of stupid, you know? But it wasn't as scary as I planned it to be, like other movies I've seen, like Texas Chainsaw Massacre or something like that. Would you think that a movie like that would, uh, would inspire violence toward women? Yeah, I think some guys might have ideas uh, watching this, you know, if they're sick-minded coming in here, you never know. Two young men who were about to see Maniac said movies are fiction. It's real life that's scary. And we, and we made the worst possible nightmare scenario for them so that when they go to that movie on a date, they're terrified. And what if we made revolting images so that you're disgusted when you look at the screen? Because if somebody pukes, we can put it in the press kit. We could say, people puked at schizo. <laughs> that is happening. It was a heart attack. During the screening of Raw, they gave up our fags. (laughs) Exactly. But see, so I agree with you to a degree, but here's the here's my issue with that. Whether or not people are intentionally injecting their worldview into a film, it happens. People come to the table with with their own paradigms and their own biases, and that becomes infused into 
the fabric of a film. And so I would argue that that's happening whether or not they intend on it or not. Um, yeah, but I don't know that we can say for sure these filmmakers really believe the things that they're making. Well, I don't, I instance, don't know. That, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> I was, say, for instance, the filmmakers on Don't Answer the Phone were inspired by a series of strangulations that were happening yes, in the correct. late 70s in LA. So yeah. they were inspired by current events. So they are actually putting that into their film. Yeah, but what I'm saying is we can't say that, hey, <laughs> they took real strangulations and made an exploitation movie out of it. We can't say, well, at, well, their subconscious worldview is that women should be strangled. We don't know that. We, what we said is, hey, they leverage, just like true crime podcasts, leverage real horrors that people face to get clicks and downloads and get listeners. I don't assume the people who host true crime podcasts are secret predators who want the world. Well, they are predatory, but I don't think, yeah. I don't think they assume. <laughs> I was like, there's a lot of problems with true crime podcasts. <laughs> well, that's what I'm, but that's, that's my point. We've always leveraged true crime in some way um, to tell exploitation stories. And I think it's the same thing here. P people used to sell playbills, not playbills, but programs for public hangings and tickets for public yeah. hangings. I might say it's a good thing, but I, I, I think these people are, and more often than not, very craven. And when we, the further we go into the decade, uh, we're going to get into movies that are written and directed by women that are just as exploitative uh, as these movies written and directed by people who aren't American who are just as exploitative. So, you know, this is, uh, I, I, I am, um, I'm reluctant to hang uh, a, a moral judgment on people who made these movies other than the fact that I think they just wanted money most of the time. I think they're just absolutely craving what's in the newspaper. What will scare people? What can we make movies out of? Anybody got any leftover remnant 16 millimeter that I can yeah. from other what, movies that I can patch together. And that's why I think cheapest, this stuff was what's made. What's the cheapest way we can do this? Cheapest way to make the most amount of money. And, yep. and if anything, that's the worldview, you know, uh, that is the, that's just capitalism, baby. Of course. <laughs> capitalism infiltrates everything and makes everything yeah. a hierarchy, which is a problem and wildly oppressive. I'm not saying, I want to be very clear. I'm not, and first of all, you said about how women filmmakers are also making exploitative films. And we are going to talk about Slumber Party Massacre, which, spoiler alert, one of my favorites. It's fantastic. And mm. I would argue it's actually not exploitative. It's actually highly feminist, but that's a whole other conversation coming down. That was later. the film I was talking about. Of course. And because it's brilliant, it's a brilliant subversion. No, that wasn't the film. Oh, I was well, talking there we about. go. Well, it's a brilliant subversion, but we're getting to other ones and I'm getting ahead of myself. But the other thing is, is that I'm not saying that these filmmakers are predatory. I'm saying that this film is an abomination and it is horrible and that you can still, even if it's not a filmmaker's yes. intention, once a film is out into the world, it is for analysis. It is to be viewed and you can analyze it and discuss it and unpack it in any ways. And sometimes there are films where the intention was not to express a certain message or have a certain theme, but yet it still does and still can be interpreted that way. But I'm not saying these filmmakers are horrible monsters. I'm just saying their film is. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I think for me, I always want to tread the line of what is analysis and what is retro injecting meaning where it wasn't there. When are we isogeting the text of the film versus exegeting the text of the film? And I think there's nothing here to exegete. So there, that leaves us with a lot to isogy. We can we can project a lot onto these movies 
because there's actually not a lot of substance to them. There's nothing there for a lot of them. And Don't Answer the Phone, I think, is a perfect example of that. There's nothing to that movie. Really. There's no, there's no, what is it? There's no, it's See, just. Yeah, you and I are going to disagree on this. <laughs> I wildly disagree. I think there's a lot to unpack Ooh. with it. First episode. Here we are, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. This is what this is what you came for. And somehow we had this brief, right? Peek behind the curtains, number two. We'd be like, 75 minutes sounds good. We haven't even got off the first film yet. And we we're like way past the halfway mark. So well, at that point, I think we should jump into the art the awards, Paul. T- got us through the right. awards. All right. Read back through them again. A best flick out of five sharp objects, best poster slash box art, best kill. What is the best cult classic or most likely cult classic and best final quote unquote girl? Yeah. Let's start with the best final girl. Best final girl is Disco Kim, a.k.a. Jamie Lee Curtis from uh, Prom Night. There's a special night in the lives of all of us. A night to be beautiful, to be desirable. A night we can break all the rules and make our own. Really? Okay, so why does she get the nod for you? Because despite the fact that they go to high school on a cliff, (laughs) it seems like a very strange place to build your high school. This movie is almost more of a, again, like, it's a melodrama. This is a melodrama. Absolutely. (laughs) It's a really shitty slasher. That's what it is. Yeah, this is a soap (laughs) opera. It's a melodrama. But because it's a melodrama, like we actually kind of get to is despite how deep the laws of this movie are, and there are oh deep, God. deep laws in Prom wow. Night. Uh, I am refreshed by the fact that they let the heavy set guy with glasses lay some good pipe. That's nice. He actually <laughs> is like the movie makes a point to be like this virginal heavy guy with glasses is a Dick Smith, and that is wonderful because that's the that they always that's the guy who always gets made fun of in movies like this, and true. he's not. He's that's the true. best lover in the movie. Um, Tyson, uh, right? oh yeah, well yeah, of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he took that big dick energy, I think, right over the cliff or in the van. Or <laughs> um, that's it. After he after he drove around doing buddy bog laps for about twenty minutes trying to get away from oh my the killers. God. anyway, yeah. <laughs> Um, I just think that she is the most realized like female character because again, it's a more of a melodrama than it is an exploitation film. It's it, honestly, it's like a soap opera pretending to be an exploitation film. That's what it feels like to me. Um, okay. And yeah, Take I think by that surprise. Yeah. All right, Megan. So your I'm, best final girl. I'm really torn by this because. And I'll tell you why. So I agree with you, Jason, that Jamie Lee Curtis is the best in all of like she's the I think she's doing the best acting job. I think her character is the most realized, like you said. I think she's a fascinating final girl. But I also think she's not a conventional final girl. And so mm-hmm. if looking at the conventions of the final girl, I think Alice is a better final girl in Friday the thirteenth. But I gotta give it also to Jamie Lee Curtis. So I was very torn between the two. Right. Well, good. This comes to me then on this occasion as the deciding vote. Uh, and I'm definitely going with Alice. Alice. Oh, has- what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> Paul, Paul yes. we reviewed these movies already. Alice, what is she even at that camp for? What is her fit? 
what is her family scenario back she in California that she may or may not have to attend to? Is she fucking <laughs> cr- the, the what's his face? The owner of the camp? What is the relationship? Why is she drawing him? Why is she there if she doesn't like the woods? The best female character in Friday the 13th is the Janet Lee character who you think is going to be your final girl who they kill in the Jeep. In the That's your best female oh, character. The cook. She's dead tw- yeah, she's dead 20 minutes in. Yeah. Nope. Alice is not a person. Alice actually fights. Alice actually does yes. something. Yeah, she and does. Beats the villain. Whereas Jamie Lee Curtis stands around and goes, ah, ah, ineffectually and watches whilst <laughs> the killer gets unstuck. So, whilst so she might you, be would, you would prefer Jamie Lee Curtis kill her own brother again? Yep. We'll get to that. Yes. She kills her brother later in a different <laughs> franchise. Yes. In one I continuity. Would. 100% oh, would rather no. that were the case. So, <laughs> and that might have carried some actual thematic and resonance weight. But unlike that whole film, Prom Night, my whole one-line review on Letterboxd was, now I understand why so many kids skip out of this event to go and get laid. That movie sucks. <laughs> so, the yes, one thing Alice I will say is the, the, the winner of the blood pool, the first award from the blood pool. The one thing I will say about <laughs> Prom Night is they allow a kid to die. A kid gets out the window and listen. Yep. I will, give, I will always give a film credit for... <laughs> A dead kid. kid. Oh, look, no one saw that coming. There's your first episode twist, ladies and Megan, what does that say about your worldview? (laughs) What can I say? (laughs) I'm a complicated person. (laughs) Too many goddamn kids where I goddamn came from. (laughs) Megan wants children thrown through panes of glass onto panes of glass and dead in front of their father and their and to traumatize their little brother. Oh God! Here's, here's, um, a, um, here's my question about prom night. If I can, just, I didn't take this as a competition. That since I was voted against, that now it's well. This is the the slashers podcast yeah, officially nah. says Alice is the best. I think that's the way girl. we do it. Oh, if we go, what, fuck off. if we go, if all three of us have a different answer, then we go to the listeners to be the deciding vote. There you go. Bam! Oh. This is as we sit here. This is what happens when you put me in charge, Jason. Shit, Paul, you down. can't do anything without competition. Give it a rest. <laughs> <laughs> this is in the countdown. I'm not Wayne. I'm Jason, goddammit. <laughs> um, <laughs> if you had murdered, however incidentally, yeah. you're a, a woman 10 years ago, whatever it was, a person, would you therefore put yourself in the orbit of this entire family by dating the other sister? <laughs> what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> I prom know night. what he's talking about. He's talking about prom night. <laughs> well, that, that whole film, that, it doesn't hold up. Leslie Nielsen, he's not even there for a paycheck. Leslie Nielsen <laughs> walks onto screen three times, adjusts his immaculate hair and walks off again. That film sucks. I think prom night is boring, but I think it's good. <laughs> Don't forget the dance. Wow. Don't forget okay. the dance with Leslie oh, Nielsen. How long did they dance for? I mean, the music was good. I'm like, okay, this is the best bit of the whole film. Yeah. The music is good. But Jesus, it's not, it's not a musical. <laughs> Maybe it should have been. All right, All right. let's move on. You've humiliated me enough. Well, well, hang on. We've got four more categories. Hold your horses. Uh, all right. Best poster box art. I'll go first this time then since I wow. shouldn't be left to last. This one I found hard. Look, in the end, I went with, I think the most striking cover that I found was from Motel Hill, having those four heads sticking up out of the ground, you know, in various guises of screaming in horror, but not able to make any sound as we learned through the course of the film. Then with the ghostly apparitions of the farmers behind them. Um, yeah, I quite like that that poster for myself. Yeah. 
you may never again spend a night away from home. After you spend a night with Ida and Vincent. Ida will show you the way. You want us to uh, register? No, that won't be necessary. What do you think? What's the best uh, poster or VHS box art? Oh, my God. I cannot believe I'm going to say this. It goes against every fiber in my being and everything I believe in. But Maniac has the best, most striking yeah, poster. It's horrifying, but it's, it has got the most captivating and eye-catching poster. It's so striking that when they remade the movie, they pretty much just kept that, that image. Yeah. Some of so the you're material. talking about the image yeah. where... the it's holding a scalp. Sort of holding a scalp. <laughs> Blood, a yeah. bloody, a bloody yeah. knife dripping in a scalp. Yeah, yep. it's horrible. Okay, that one. <laughs> it's horrible. <laughs> I am torn between prom night uh, with the reflection and the knife and the, all the dance and all that sort of stuff and motel hell. So I am actually going to go, since I want to win something, since apparently that's a competition now, <laughs> I'm going to side with Paul, my abuser. <laughs> and say motel hell that that's my first instinct not the one that i have here the original vhs no, release but the more God classic gosh. where you're kind of it's a perspective of the field and you got mm-hmm. the heads and then they're kind of in the background and the yes. weird glowy green fog that yeah it is very striking it's so striking that like um it is a pr- motel hell is one of three primal memories of the video store for me oh. uh and because slashers were all the rage, of course, in the video store era. Yes, they were. And it's Motel Hell, Dawn of the Dead, and The Hills Have Eyes. Those three covers used to scare the shit out of me as a kid. That Dawn so. of the Dead one I can relate to. One of my parents had the book, the novelization of Dawn of the Dead. Yeah. And that was the cover that drew me in again and again, but I wasn't allowed to read it until a number of years later for obvious reasons. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So I'm signing with you, Paul. Motel Hell. Ooh. All right. There we are. Uh, all right. How about cult classic? This is, I found this one a little bit difficult to kind of understand what you meant by cult classic. Like the one that is not mainstream, dark alley. What do, what's pa- the one that you think isn't necessarily good, but the one that you like? Oh, okay. Is that what you mean? All right. Well, yeah. Megan, your, your first is done. <laughs> well, I actually, I didn't interpret it that way. So my answer might be different. But to me, the one that's the most cult classic E is Fade to Black. Like, without question. This is Eric. <laughs> Eric Benford. Double-crossing, squealers, both here. I go to a lot of movies. It's my thing. <laughs> you know what I do to squealers? <laughs> Why don't you live in the real world with the rest of us? You're so smart, Stella. Tell me what James Cagney's name was in White Heat. Benford is it's so out there and just different for not just a slasher, but a horror film in general. I mean, seeing seeing a, a massive cinephile who is emulating his favorite scenes from the golden age of Hollywood, whether it's <laughs> to murder people, you know, right. To murder people. <laughs> like whether it's the mummy or, you know, Dracula, the universal monsters, or whether it's, yeah. you know, James Cagney and white, he, and changing his name to Cody Jarrett. It, I mean, yeah. it's his obsession with Marilyn Monroe, like it's just, it's absurd, but I kind of have a soft spot in my heart for seeing 
someone who loves the golden age of Hollywood so much. There's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, TCM. And then there's Turner Classic Movie, TCM. This is the T- Turner Classic Movie killer. This guy <laughs> is a letterboxed nerd come to mm-hmm. life who's like, they haven't made good movies since talkies were invented. And I'm going <laughs> to... And then him, him emulating and then them cutting back to the footage, which I don't know how they licensed some of that footage. Right? They did. Mm. Uh, just of like these these golden age of Hollywood films and him, yeah, b- being just a, an obsessed movie weirdo. <laughs> it almost puts this into the category of like one of the earliest meta slashers to ever exist, right? Yes. Yeah, yep, yes. I'd go with that. And because it, it's it, like it preys a lot of these movies come down to like, oh, if you do too much of X, you're going to become a killer, right? Mm-hmm. Like if you play too much Dungeons and Dragons, you're going to become a serial killer. If you yep. touch a Ouija board, you're going to become a serial killer. If you, you know, and this movie's just like, if you watch too much Turner Classic movies, <laughs> you're going to be a serial killer. <laughs> if you watch the AFI top 100, you're going to murder Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> like, what the hell? And if your mom lies about being your aunt instead of your mom. <laughs> That's some Alfred Hitchcock psycho shit though, yes. isn't it? Like yes, that, it is. Yes. Absolutely. Your abusive, your abusive aunt is really your biological mother. Yes. Ooh. Never tells you. Ooh. Yeah, look, I I agree. I have to say, Megan, I was surprised. I'd never, I'd never, I'd heard of this film. I'd never felt compelled to watch it. I stuck it on, and it's arguably the best made film, possibly other than Friday the Thirteenth in this pack. Mm-hmm. And I would recommend anyone watches this movie who, especially those who enjoy cinema and can get the references and understand where he's coming from but there's some really inventive set pieces here if not for the last 10 minutes of the film which are pretty terrible it just runs out of steam and doesn't know how to end this film um and the the very strange side product with bloody what's his name dole man and um tim thomerson tim thomerson and (laughs) and the because he's a psychologist i think and she and the attractive police <laughs> woman who had this ridiculous byline romance that doesn't so belong bad. in this film at all. This would have been really good. It's consensual. It's a consensual yes, relationship. It is. It, and in 1980, apparently, that's a really rare thing. So that's nice. That yeah. <laughs> it's it a consensual is. relationship between two middle-aged people. In slasher movies of 1980, that's all you could ask for. And they both um, walk away alive. I, I'm yes. a Tim Thomerson fan. Uh, I think Tim Thomerson is the poor man's Tom Atkins. So <laughs> um, I see that. Yeah. He's Jack death, baby. He's Jack death <laughs> and doll man. Hmm. How many, and how many people can kill transfers and transfers and demonic toys? That's a not great many. Question. Not very many. <laughs> Only Tim Thomerson can. Um, wow. I can't believe you guys both. I, I understand why Megan, well, actually I understand why both of you were like faded black. Because Megan loves the golden age of Hollywood. I do. And um, I, lo- I like seeing Mickey Rourke die. <laughs> Paul gave two great. and a half stars to Sunset Boulevard. And the only thing that drives, <laughs> the only thing that drives him to murderous rage <laughs> more than musicals is the golden age of Hollywood. So did you personally identify with this weirdo who locks himself in his room and hates old or, or is driven to murder because of old timey movies? Did you personally? Yeah, I think he might be at the other end of the spectrum for me, but okay. <laughs> Paul sunset Boulevard as a chimpanzee funeral. 
Yep. No movie <laughs> with a chimpanzee funeral is two and a half stars. All right. I'm glad we understand a little bit more about Jason's world now. <laughs> if you, if you want to know what's wrong with Paul, Paul gave Critters 3 a higher score than fucking Did Sunset I? Boulevard. Wow. I don't think I'll score <laughs> That's That's the most it's his film review. It's his film debut. Uh, I think the cult classic here is Motel Hell. I think it's campy, bizarre. Oh, the film is bizarre. Psycho meets Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It's it's a comedy. I don't know that they knew they were making a comedy. I kind of get the sense that they did. I think um, they wrote a horror film first, and then the studio got involved or the rewrites happened because it feels like this is definitely a horror film, which just got out of control and just went fuck it let's just lean into the into the uh ha ha ha's and and the ridiculousness of it all but that's honestly that's what makes it work to me i think if you're out there and you're a fan again of like texas chainsaw massacre 2 i think this is texas chainsaw massacre 2 before texas chainsaw massacre 2 i i the entire idea that cannibals are running like a roadside motel slash smoke (laughs) shop and they have a garden Full of beatniks and hippies and, <laughs> and acid rock bands, <laughs> yeah, and just any anybody who comes across their way, they, I, the idea that they put ads in swingers magazines of like, hey, come fucking our hotel, we're a swinger hotel, <laughs> and people, and, answered. <laughs> and people yeah. answered, and then they they rip out their vocal cords and and then it's so stupid they bury them like cabbage, like. Like, what the fuck? How's that going to... But it all of that what-the-fuckness of this movie, and I think two very odd performances from the lead actors. Very um, odd. Very odd. It's, it's very odd in a way that is... It reminds me of, of deranged people I've met in real life, in a way. Oh, Especially nice. her performance. <laughs> and I was just like, this, this... I've met people like this. People like this live in Ohio. And I would end up in their meat garden. And so I <laughs> motel hell is a hundred percent the sort of it's, it's a, it's a tired cliche at this point. It's to the point that I hate it, but the very nice, like quasi Baptist <laughs> cannibals. Oh. <laughs> I just thought um, it's, it's not an effective horror movie, but it, but it is creepy and bizarre and because of that it, it fits every definition of what a cult classic is in my in my, it, uh, my book. that's true it might be the first environmental slasher film ever made that's the other thing Possibly. yes yeah and that's although yes, actually yeah. i don't think it is i think texas chainsaw massacre is i would argue because it's a vegetarian allegory um but <laughs> okay but it would, this is certainly the second <laughs> but yeah but <laughs> Paul's reaction is okay. Yeah, it is. Toby Hooper intended it to be a vegetarian allegory, but that was intentional. But yeah, so, but I would say I find the food politics fascinating and the fact that Vincent thinks he's solving overpopulation and the lack of food with one solution. Yeah. <laughs> that is a fascinating premise. The best I, villains are the ones who think that they're right, that they're the hero. Farmer well, Vincent he has, that moment, he's the hero. has that moment of doubt right by the right towards the end, but the problem, oh, my oh, problem with that and the end when he's like he's like when he's dying he's like yeah. I got a confession to make. <laughs> oh my god! I use so preservatives. <laughs> I use preservatives. It was the greatest thing oh in the god. world. This guy, this guy is hog tied, mutilated, and murdered, and fed, turned into beef jerky human beings. 
And but the thing that he's upset about is he lied about the preservatives. There's never preservatives yeah. and and Farmer Vincent's frit, uh, fritters and boy there were and I thought that was fucking hilarious. The problem with this film is less the the villains and and I look that kind of weird campy comedy doesn't work for me. But the hero of this piece, <laughs> oh my god, what a piece of shit! You know we're meant to get behind the guy that tries. Oh, the to brother. Himself, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Horrible. On a, on a woman, and then that woman somehow falling for Farmer Vincent after her bow disappears in a car accident. Oh, no, he's died. We buried him out the back here. Oh, you're the greatest. I want to have your children. When he's, like, old enough to be her grandfather. I'm like, this mm-hmm. is weird and messed me up. So it makes perfect sense. It That's what makes it a cult, cult classic. classic. <laughs> cult classic. It doesn't make sense. It's bizarre. It's strange. Uh, camp like this doesn't usually work for me, but after watching all these other movies that are exactly the fucking same, this one was in 1980 was at least doing something different. At least it's ripping off Texas Chainsaw Massacre instead of ripping off fucking Black Christmas or Halloween. The rest of these are Black Christmas, Halloween, psycho ripoffs. Yep. Full stop. Yep. This is the one that is doing, it's ripping off at least a different movie. <laughs> and it's, it's, it's injecting some kind of levity. I mean, we're watching people get scalped. And, and again, I don't have anything against it, but there's a sameness to the rest of this. And this yeah. is different. And that's what I think puts it in cult classic category. Just I lost. Jason I lose. no problem with people being scalped. Okay, good. No problem. Yeah, yeah. But, but that's how I feel about Fade to Black. And that's because... Motel Hell is, while it's a spoof, it's a satire, while it has these comedic elements, it is still kind of a retelling of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which is where Fade to Black is, is doing something very different. And you have that great performance by Dennis Christopher that just imbues so much pathos and I thought his, I thought his performance was terrible. Oh, interesting. Yeah, he's in the, oh, I liked him. I he's liked in him the too. It, uh, he's in the It miniseries. He's the one that's Yes, played, he is. Uh, I know. This is battery acid, you scum. <laughs> he's uh eddie or whatever he's the hypochondriac yeah. oh yep. okay you're right yep. yeah Go so no, i didn't think yeah. he was good I, in I, it. I, I honestly think he's the worst part of this movie i think the concept is more interesting i think he's terrible that's fair I, honestly okay. that's what kills fade to black for me i think he's awful i i uh, i think everything else about the movie if, if if it weren't for him i'd be right on board with you guys but i just that's can't fair. do it okay. with him can't I, do it with that guy I think his overacting works. It works for me in this in the confines of this film, not in anyone anywhere else. But I I hear you. I get, I get it. I not hear what you're saying. Any other film he's ever been in. No. <laughs> but here it works. I don't, I don't remember any other film. But in this film, <laughs> fair, I thought, yeah, because he's because he's he's being uh he's emulating these films and the right. actors he sees within it. It makes sense to me that he's over the top because he's doing a poor job of trying to copy them. But anyway. Yes, see, Paul, you and I we're seeing eye to eye. I like it. it. We get, get it. it. Jason, just oh, in the middle of us on the screen here. You're not getting between <laughs> our connection. Just All wait. Right. There's going to be a turn, and I'm going to laugh my ass off. <laughs> <laughs> Best kill. Second to last category from today's episode, 1980, The Slashes. There's only one What's answer. What's your favorite kill? I, I think there's only one answer for me in this, in this lot. Spoiler there's only one answer for me, too. Part one. Uh, Kevin Bacon is, in Friday the yes! 13th. Yes! Yes! Jason's shaking his head? No. Oh, no. Once again, we have a disagreement. <laughs> the outlier of and all once again, outliers. Once again, Paul, you and I are in sync. Yep. No. <laughs> 
No, because once you start watching Giallo films, you realize that Tom Savini stole that gag from about four other Italian horror films. Oh, he totally okay. did. Yeah, that, so it takes it away from me. But Tom Savini has another gag that he didn't steal, and it's him himself who's the recipient of the kill. It is the best kill of the week and one of the best headshots in the history of cinema. I'm not talking about scanners. I'm talking about when when Joe Spinell yep. shows up in Maniac with a sawed-off shotgun and blows his head off in a car. Uh, that head explosion for a movie of this budget and this size with Tom Savini's Ed explodes in Maniac. That's the best kill of the week. That's a great kill. It really is. I, I, I don't disagree. The reason I went with Kevin Bacon in Friday the 13th is not because it was original, because you're absolutely right, Jason. It's not. But the reason I went with it is because it's the most, for me, it's the most memorable. It's the one that stuck mm. with me, whereas all the others kind of just bleed into same, each other. Same. You know, and yeah. didn't stand out. That one did. Having something come back out through your the back of your neck, out through your throat, it stuck out for me. So, but I hear you. That's a great headshot. It really is. It was. It's disturbing. <laughs> it's disturbing. That's the other thing. I see. You know, we see a lot of headshots, and it's like when I look at that sort of stuff, I'm always looking at it from like the stagecraft perspective. Like I don't see it as like, oh, this is real, or like I don't get engrossed in that way. I'm mm -hmm. thinking about. How'd they do that? I look at like magic tricks. Like how'd they do that? Like how much dog food did that take? Like how many <laughs> condoms full of like beef intestines and stuff. But when it comes to maniac, especially because it's the only kill like that in that movie, there's a lot of other sameness of how he murders right. a lot of strangulation and gouging and whatnot. The fact that he just like shows up at like lover's peak with a shotgun and just bam. And it, like the shattering glass of the head explodes. It was visceral, disturbing. It stuck with me. It made me feel sick. <laughs> and, um, none of the other kills did. It was, I was, Fair it enough. was, they're all the same. That, that one was, I wasn't desensitized to that one. So that's why it sticks out to me. And this movie had yep. zero budget, zero budget. There's no Paramount yeah. pictures behind Maniac. 350,000, apparently. According to yeah, to that's Wikipedia. incredible. So yeah, not much at all. Not much at yeah. all. Yeah, for me, it's the Kevin Bacon one because. One, it stands out in that film, and okay, um, and I already said that. This Jason, you're shaking your head. You, you heard me say oh, first, <laughs> but it's you're laying there in bed. You have yeah. you've had a great time. You're just chilling, <laughs> and then next thing you know, something is thrusting through your throat. Whereas I haven't been in Lovers Lane too many times in my life. Maybe that's why we're all exposed. We're all vulnerable <laughs> in bed. You've had a lot of head explosions on Lovers Lane, Paul. <laughs> I haven't had a lot of head explosions, nor, nor attempts wow. to be on Lover's Lane. Let's put it that way. So, Some creepy, yeah, dirty, greasy man appeared as you sat in your car on Lover's Lane. Next thing you know, your head was exploding. That's it. Okay. Best, best film. Jason, lead us away. What is your favorite film of these seven from today's blood pool? Favorite is not the right word. Best. It's not my favorite. Best. It's not even best. Well, well, then um, you're not listening to the category. What, what are you no, I about? am. You, you wrote these categories, damn it. I understand. <laughs> but it's, it, to me, but when it comes to a slasher, best is not the same thing as the golden age of Hollywood. I think you have to use different criteria for different genres, and there's different gradations of, of how you approach film, especially with these. these so many of these are B-movies. I think B-movies, exploitation movies, 
you have to have your own, you have to have a different lens than mainstream film when you're viewing it because otherwise none of them are any good. For me, I think about what is, if a slasher ought to scare me, it ought to disturb me. You know, it ought to thrill me in some way, but it ought to, it ought to leave me unnerved. You know, that's my perspective. These are horror movies. So I ought to be horrified. And the most horrifying movie that is on this list, the one that disturbed me, the one that is a video nasty, actually schizoid's a video nasty as well. The one that schizoid, woo schizoid. The one that uh, is just disturbing and visceral and hard to get through and um, yet I think has one of the more compelling performances, as fucked up as it is, is Maniac. Wow. And I I give it four out of (laughs) 4.5 out of five sharp objects. Holy shit. Wow. I'm not afraid of a guy in the woods. I'm not afraid of uh, a, a mouth-breathing pervert um, who calls into radio shows because although you could do it with a podcast. Oh shit! Yeah. I don't. I'm not afraid of any of these other people. I'm not afraid of Farmer Vincent, even though there's a few Farmer Vincents that live not too far from me. Uh, I I'm afraid of the. I'm afraid of the weird man who's just roaming the streets and kills indiscriminately because that feels real. We've had moments like that. We've had night stalkers and, you know, serial killers and whatnot. And as, you know, as heightened as the movie is because it is from his perspective. And also that's the other thing. We are left alone with this guy's perspective and his perspective is fucked in the head. This man is fucked in the head and being left oh, yeah. alone with that perspective and having no other character to rely on. It's the same thing as like um, Henry portrait of a serial killer depraved movie, but it's absolutely um, horrifying because there's no escape in this movie. We never get a reprieve. There's no nice moment. There's no jump on over to a lovely romance between a cop who's on the case and a random <laughs> insurance agent or whatever, like the rest of these movies. It's you, you are just left alone with a completely unsympathetic, deranged individual who cannot be stopped until his victims come back and kill him, which may be metaphorical, maybe literal. Who knows? Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask oh, about that what you guys thought of that ending. And honestly, I, I, see, I see so much of what Jonathan Demme would later do with Buffalo Bill. Uh, I, and, and I think a lot of the serial killers that get presented in the 90s are oddly uh based on and there's a reason why maniac is is a historically known film and joe, joe spinell gets so much um historical credit for this performance because this is my guy from rocky this is my guy from godfather and here he's just fucking disgusting oh so that's why 4.5 out of 5 sharp objects wow gross disgusting deplorable <laughs> best movie of the week i am surprised more so by the score than because your reasoning is very, I get it, makes a lot of sense what you said there. Jason, my biggest problem with Maniac is just that it feels so um, Marty Sue. Like this guy writes himself into this film where some of the most insanely attractive women are throwing themselves at him to date him and then he murders them. But anyway, that's beside the point. And I'm like, there's no way, mate. There's no <laughs> way you are picking up that quality of woman. 
at all. Well, hey. In fairness, he's paying for most of them. Not the photographer. Well, not the, the, the main. Right. Yeah, the photographer, the one who survives, as you said, the professional woman who, who manages to get through. But even, no, I think that the woman who he's on the photo shoot with and when he, he goes home or out with her and eventually gets back into her house and then murders her, she's just into him for the sake of it. Not, that's not a pain. If that's, your hang up with, if that's your hang up with a movie on a list of these fucking movies, you are digging for <laughs> something took to me out nitpick. Of took me out of it. Took me out of it. Yeah. There's a, there's a cabbage patch full of hippies in somebody's backyard. <laughs> You're like, the, the part that's really unrealistic is that Joe Spinell could get laid. Okay. <laughs> By these women. As I say, I'm with Paul on that as far as the unbelievability factor. Because when you're comparing it to Motel Hell, Motel Hell is absurd right from the start. And the entire film is absurdism. Whereas Maniac is not. It's supposed to be grounded in reality until the very end. Do we think that's real? That's, I mean, it can't be real, right? That's I, I, Honestly, I don't know. He kills himself. I think he kills himself. He tries to. Yeah. He tries to. I'm going to yeah. be honest with you. I don't know how much of any of the movie is real because I think it's oh, like an American, American psycho. psycho. Like they, we're yeah. constantly oh, okay. in his perspective. Okay. That's it's fair. how he sees the world, which is why right. this movie is so disturbing. You know, but then why do the cops so. come in at the end? Unless he's imagining that as well. Right. Then we switch to their perspective for the very end. Because we switch to their perspective for the very end. You just say it yourself. Yeah, but so, but why do they? Paul, do you watch? Do you watch movies? Do you watch movies, Paul? Are you if it's not real, he didn't kill anyone. Why are they chasing him? I'm not saying he didn't kill anybody. What I'm saying is we're seeing all of the world until he's the end of the movie from his perspective. Yes. We're in his right. mind, which is why, but, like, why he's an American like, psycho. He didn't kill anyone. Yeah. I'm not saying it is American psycho. I'm saying we are in the killer's P- literal POV in his mind. Yes. That's why yes. the whole movie is so uh, just gruesome and disturbed. Yeah, that it is. All right. All right. Okay. What is your favorite? Sorry, sorry. What is the best flick? And out of how many sh- five sharp objects are you giving it? My best film is the one that is, for me, I think the most impactful, the most influential, the film I can watch multiple times, which is Friday the 13th. If we're looking at these films, I think Friday the 13th is the most interesting again what it's doing with its production um it to me it looks the best as far as cinematography goes i think there's something really unsettling and unnerving being in the woods especially if you're looking at it from a class perspective of coming from the city going into the woods going into an unknown remote location and i think this film was massively impactful on so many other horror films and films at large so for me the best film is Friday the 13th. Megan's oh. afraid of being killed by an elderly woman in the woods. That's what we <laughs> well, discovered. that's, you know, that's the other thing too. I didn't even mention With the man, fact who, that it's the twist. Man hands. <laughs> right. The fact that you have a twist, twist. of the killer and that it's a yep. woman and not just any woman, but it, that it's an older woman who looks kind of grandmotherly. I mean, Alice immediately runs out when she sees her and she's like, oh, thank God you're here. And it's like, no, no, no. She's the killer. Like, I love that mm. little twist. I think it's great. And I mean, of course, it's so known now, but at that time it was not. And it must have been quite shocking to see it play out that way. So, yeah. So that's what I would say. And I'm giving it three sharp objects out of five. 
so clearly at some point in proceedings, Megan read my notes on my phone. And I would like to know how you got access, <laughs> Megan, because my favorite film, not favorite, best film of this lot for me, the one which I gave this exact score to when Jason and I did it a couple of years back on his show, Binge Movies, is Friday the 13th. It is all yes. the things that you said, Megan. It is influential. It is. It has a. It has a legitimately good twist. Not that you could really pick it based on. It's not succeeding you with clues. It is a retread of Psycho and Halloween, and it's not as good as either of those two films. But no. it's. But it riffs on the best parts of those movies and does something successful. Successful enough that we are. Well, I guess Halloween now has more sequels, but the second most uh, amount of sequels, I think. In horror film land, Jason, please tell me Hellraiser is not as many as that. But anyway, point is, yeah, I like that one a lot. And I also, well, I like it just fine. And I gave it, if we give it <laughs> half stars, three, three sharp objects out of five, exactly the same. Yay. Well, I think what's most interesting is uh, now we know that I'm coming at it from a completely different perspective than these two legitimate film critics, uh, <laughs> apparently, that on this show. Uh, I think you, you have to judge movies like this in a completely different criteria. I'm judging them within their own genre, baby. I am judging them within the genre of slashers. What makes a good slasher? And not what makes a good film, not what makes a good uh, Academy Award winning, whatever. I want None know of these films with the Academy Awards. No. I want to know. I'm not applying. What I'm saying is I'm not applying the same criteria or scrutiny to these films as I do other movies, because this is a subgenre for uh, the fringes of film for the most part, even though Paramount is behind it. Well, that brings us to the end of The Slashes, episode one, 1980. And for those keeping score at home in five definitive categories, two hosts. There's no fucking keeping score. <laughs> I was on the right side of the equation every time to Jason's absolute annoyance. This is the right. only reason why you're doing it. Your competitive <laughs> nature is coming out. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I just want to do this so I can finally beat Jason at something. This is a God, right. God darn conspiracy. Yeah. Megan and I talked offline before you got here, Jason, and we agreed on everything <laughs> in advance. <laughs> I want to see. Here's the thing. I want the listeners to, to chime in. And I want them to tell us what, who they think is correct. Uh, and what, what do they agree with? What are their rankings? What are their awards? What movies should we have talked about? Should we have talked more the, about Schizoid? All of the schizoid. above. That's Schizoid. Dear Julie, don't let me do it again. How weird is Klaus Kinski? How weird was he? Klaus Kinski, man. This guy would just appear in almost anything. It appeared like, what in the world? We didn't even get into how he was abusive on set. <laughs> What's that? Oh, he was abusive on set. On that film or, yeah. or every film? No, on that set. Right. On during the sex scene uh, with Flo Lawrence, I think her name is. Oh dear. Okay. Well, maybe it doesn't deserve discussion. Golden Globus were involved in the production, and the, when the film debuted, where did it debut, Paul? Canon film. Where did it debut, Paul? Don't I? Where did it debut, Jason? Tell us. I bet. Best place on earth, Cleveland, Ohio. Uh, right. Well, we're going to be back next week for episode two, first part of 1981 of The Slashes. And Jason, do you want to tell the listeners what films we'll be covering? 
I do. Uh, if you want to continue with the humiliation of Jason from Binge Movies, tune in <laughs> on our very next episode. We start with January 1981's Home Sweet Home. Uh, we continue in the month of January with Night School. Then we go to February with My Buddy Valentine. And then we wrap up part one of 1981 with another Toby Hooper flick, uh, March's The Fun House. Well, if you would like to follow Jason's directive and give him a sympathy vote, you can do so via a number of different social media avenues. Megan, can you tell the good folk where to find us? Yes, you can follow us on Instagram at The Slashers Podcast and on Letterboxd at The Slashers. And don't forget, five stars reviews will help the show grow and get out there to a wider audience. And, and that way we can hopefully enlighten you with more slashes. And then you can tell us what slashes we should be covering as we're going to run all the way through to 1984 in this first season of the show. It's been an absolute pleasure coming to you today to talk about some of the most disturbing exploitation and weird out there strange films. Schizoid. Dear Julie, don't let me do it again. Megan, where can the good listeners find you? You can find me on Twitter at OpinionSWorld or on Instagram and Letterboxd at TheOpinionS. Jason? At Binge Movies on Twitter, at Binge Movies on Letterboxd, at Binge Movies Lives on Instagram. At the Countdown PC for myself on Twitter and Kaiser Soze on Letterboxd. All right, and that's it for us today for episode one of The Slashes. We hope you've enjoyed our journey through depravity and we will catch you next time for episode two.